Dr. Dobbin, Kevin Bass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio. My guest in this edition of Fangraph Studio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. It's Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note in this case. Sub-zero temperatures visited New England uh, this past week, and due to those temperatures, no one was to be found at Cafe Creme in Bath, Maine, this past Saturday morning, a day on which, because of the farmer's market and other assorted civic activities, a day on which the cafe is very busy. It wasn't as though there were just a couple fewer people, though. Uh, there was almost no one there, as if everyone had received notice that it was not the day to go downtown. This is an anecdote I present to Dave Cameron, who in it finds a suitable metaphor for that moment in the player's career when he transforms from a serviceable starter to definitely a bench player. Is the expression tipping point invoked here? It is possible that the expression tipping point is invoked in what follows. Also in this edition of the program, Fangraphs is hiring. Fangraphs is searching for a new full-time writer. Details on how to apply for that position and what follows. Uh, finally, Dave Cameron, of course, uh, never one to mince words, uh, offers these discouraging ones regarding not only the host's professional prospects, uh, but also his life in general. It's hard to forecast any real value for you going forward. Once again, uh, Dave Cameron's discouraging words. It's hard to forecast any real value for you going forward. Disheartening sentiment that I think we can all agree. Move on uh, to the conversation with Dave Cameron momentarily. But first, uh, it is both my pleasure and also my professional obligation to declare that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable fee. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work that appears in those pages and for a slightly less reasonable fee. Those same readers could choose, if they would like, to acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one, emancipating one, you could say, from the tyranny of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, only at Fangraphs.com, of course. Uh, Okay, Uh, with that advertisement... Now complete, let us move to uh, this conversation. What is it? Is Fangraphs Audio? Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Are you familiar with how uh, sometimes on Fangraphs Audio, uh, in particular during your weekly appearances in the program, I will present to you um, some sort of anecdote or scenario from real life and then ask you what in baseball is like that? I am aware of that, yeah. You're aware of that. Do you think it's about to happen? (laughs) I (laughs) expect now, like the data has gotten large enough. Um, Mm -hmm. My sample is now sufficient to predict that this is uh, something that's about to happen to me. Yeah, do you think it's stabilized? <laughs> We've come to a, a sort of sample where this can, where the uh, it has st- uh, stabilized. It's uh, yeah. become reliable. Yeah, I think Russell Carlton would say you don't have to regress this that far. Okay, very good. Uh, so here's what happened uh, the other day. You, well, you're probably familiar with the fact that we currently are experiencing a bomb cyclone here in New England. By we, I, you mean the East Coast? I am yeah, not experiencing that on no, the West Coast. No, you're not. You're not. Um, but uh, prior to that, we were we were experiencing a different sort of mm, weather event, which was uh, I don't know an Arctic dip or something like that. Uh, wind was coming from the North Pole essentially to this town, and so this past Saturday, 
I went to the cafe and on the bank, let's see, on the bank, uh, t- you know, time and temperature board, it said minus five degrees, right? Okay. Now, Saturday in Bath, Maine, where I live, is typically very busy. There's a farmer's market going on. Uh, there are frequently other events going on downtown, usually indoors this time of year. But uh, there are a lot of people walking around, and many of them spill over into the cafe, Cafe Creme in downtown Bath, Maine. There are usually a lot of people in the cafe, as I say, on a Saturday. In this particular case, there was basically no one there. Okay? okay. And and it, it, what I was struck by was how it was it did not seem as though it was a it was a regular uh decline the curve was not it was not a constant curve do you see what i'm saying yeah it, like, it almost seemed as though once the temperature hit a certain uh figure yeah that it said that a there was a uh, there was essentially a wave of absence yeah it wasn't just a couple fewer people. If you had designed an algorithm, it perhaps would have been of an exponential variety as opposed to a linear variety. Yeah. It's a, a tipping point, essentially. Okay, so we've reached a tipping point, which I'm uh, – uh, Eno Saris wrote a book on that, I think. <laughs> Isn't that right? Uh, I don't think that's entirely <laughs> true. Well, one of his yeah. – I'm sure one of his uh, relatives. Uh, tell, me about, tell me about tipping points – in baseball, or present to me at least one one situation in which uh, we witness a tipping point. So I think um, probably the easiest way to see it is where uh, you're doing forecasts for a player, maybe like an aging curve or like a long-term projection for maybe like a free agent that you're going to sign, where um, in general I think most aging curves have shown like most stuff kind of is just like a gradual steady decline. There aren't these huge cliffs that people kind of yeah. imagine. Um, in terms yeah, and, of let me, and let me interject here. You wrote a piece that has influenced me for some time. I think it was about Lance Berkman. You wrote it like, I mean, you wrote it when Lance Berkman was playing. <laughs> so it was a while ago. Uh, but it, um, you addressed the, f- the fact that I think he had just been signed by the Yankees, maybe. Yeah, sounds right. And there was, a, I'm not going to say there was a consensus, but there there seemed to be a, a not unpopular um, thought, opinion, that uh, that Lance Berkman was done because yeah. I think he just suffered through a pretty miserable uh, season or half yeah. season the year before. Right. I think he was you hurt, said, and then like in the 300 plate appearances he had that year, he was not good. Right. And and you essentially said just because a player is uh, getting older does not mean that he, he has fallen off a cliff necessarily. Right. Like you you get old players play poorly and not have it because that be because they're old. Like players, yeah, we we understand like. Young players can just have, like, bad stretches that aren't indicative of their talent level. We understand that, like, middle-aged players, but, like, it seems like any old player who goes through some kind of, like, performance decline, the causation is immediately age, when that's not always the case. Sometimes they could just be, like, hurt or bad luck or whatever, like... But maybe there is a tipping point, is what I hear you suggesting. So, sort of. I think, like, when you're looking at a forecast, like, I think there is a tipping point when it comes to the production you can forecast because of how it intersects with playing time. So, like, say you have an above-average major league player, say, like, a three-win player, um, and you're looking at, like, how he's going to age and how much value he's going to give you over the next, say, five years, right? So, like, you start out with a three-win player, and you think, like, he's going to lose half a win per year. He's kind of at that spot in his career. That's kind of generally what aging curves tell us. Um, so we think, like, by the second year, he'll be a two-and-a-half-win player, no problem. By the third year, he'll be a two-win player, no problem. By the fourth year, he's going to be a one-and-a-half-win player. Now you start to get really close to that tipping point of, like, one-and-a-half-win players don't start on championship teams. At least they they don't start if someone if the team can help it. 
Um, so, like, you know, like, teams will run out guys like that because someone else gets hurt, but they don't generally slot in, like, a below-average major league player, especially one in decline who might not have a lot of upside left, as, like, we're counting on this guy to be an everyday guy for us. And so once you reach a kind of, like, that one to one-and-a-half win level, you start to enter the point at which your playing time also decreases at the same time your production's decreasing, and then you can get a faster escalation of production loss because, like, okay... I only lost half a win of true talent, but that half a win moved me from a starter to a role, a bench role, and now I'm only going to play get 300 bats instead of 600 bats. So now I'm a one and a half win guy getting 300 bats. So I'm actually only a .7 win guy. So your decline from two wins to .7 wins is not just your talent decline, but also what that point you reached that bumped you out of the lineup, and now all of a sudden it's hard to forecast any real value for you going forward. So if you're looking at it and you just do the straight linear, like half a win per year, you'd be like, okay, well let's just go three, two and a half, two, one and a half, one. But that one and a half and one, like you're counting on two and a half wins at the end of the contract, those might actually be closer to zero because this guy's not actually playing that much. Or if he is playing, he's blocking some better player. Yeah, and you bring up an interesting point. There is that sort of awkward place where if a player is, yeah, you see him projected for one or one and a half wins, that it almost doesn't exist, right? Yeah. If I've got a player who's projected, and say, and I'm not talking about necessarily the public projections, if a, if a guy receives a projection of one or one and a half wins <coughs> internally, then as you point out, a team is less likely to play him, especially if they regard themselves as competitive. Yeah. And so there, there is this area where there's really no such thing as a full-time one-win player. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I think they exist as younger players. Like, you know, like, um, some guys, like, we're going to promote this guy to the big leagues. He might not be ready, but we think that the experience is good for him. He doesn't have anything else to learn in AAA. He's a one-win player this year because we think he's going to get to two. I think those guys exist. But, like, the veteran one-win player is an everyday guy, unless you're just, like, you know playing out the string and you just need some warm bodies to hold you over till your prospects get there, like, those guys aren't starting or really existing on championship teams. Yeah, I feel uh, I feel like maybe the Phillies collected, like, Howie Kendrick. Sure. The most recent version of Howie Kendrick who played yeah. for the Phillies. Yeah. He was maybe met the description. I mean, Although Chase actually, Utley, I think, is probably in that role. Like, I think Chase Utley showed that he's still got something left last year. Like, if Chase Utley would have been an everyday second baseman, he might have put up a one-and-a-half or two-win season. But he's at that point where, like, no one really wants to play Chase Utley every day anymore. So so now he put up, like, a .5 win season. Right, but then – and then that's when you start using a guy in in a, in a role, right, where you can emphasize his strengths, like in a plat- platoon, for example. Yeah. And therefore you're putting him in a situation where he's – relative to the amount of playing time, he's creating – he's creating an acceptable amount of value. But he's also – what there's a um, – Opportunity loss because he's maybe occupying a roster yeah. spot, and I think like the, t- the other challenge is like you know we're talking about this like an above average player on a long term deal, you're committing real money to these guys, right? So like you know whoever signs JD Martinez, they're going to pay him thirty million dollars a year. There's a point in this contract at which JD Martinez might not be worth playing anymore every day, but he's still going to be making thirty million a year, and like teams are generally not willing to platoon their thirty million dollar a year players, so. If you're looking at it and saying, like, at what point do I think J.D. Martinez is going to be a below-average big leaguer, can I forecast any real value for him? Like, the Red Sox already kind of have this problem with Hanley Ramirez. Hanley Ramirez is making $22 million this year. If you gave him 600 plate appearances, like, you don't want to do that because his vesting option would trigger, then you'd have him for $22 million again next year. But, like, assume that wasn't the case. 
if you could give Javier Ramirez 600 plate appearances this year as like a DH who occasionally pays first base, he might be a one and a half win player this year, or one win player, or something like that. But you don't really want to give Javier Ramirez that much playing time because you're trying to win. So now you're thinking like, I might bench or cut Hanley Ramirez to make room for J.D. Martinez, and then you have to do that same calculation in J.D. Martinez's contract. It's like, by year four, am I going to have a $30 million bench player that I don't want to play? What are the most notable cuts in recent years? Uh, well, Adrian Gonzalez got cut like three weeks ago. Oh, yeah, so that's, that's one. Right. He was due $20 million this year, and the Braves agreed to release him in order to get him to waive his no-trade clause. Um, uh, Pablo Sandoval this summer had like 40 or 50 million left on his deal and the Red Sox just said goodbye hmm yeah that didn't work out did it no that was not a great signing was Adrian Gonzalez's decline particularly swift uh did he hit a tipping point of uh of futility I mean I think he's had health issues like that you can like tipping points and health are you know correlated probably but it's hard to say like oh he just got to a point where he wasn't worth playing anymore because his like his back is like really messed up um but i do think like the dodgers were not like particularly incentivized to rush him back um even if he had like made a miraculous recovery they had better players and so i wouldn't be surprised if they were like hey rehab staff take your time with this one right you know because in two in 2015 he was a three-win player yeah and then the year after that he wasn't yeah but he still was an above average hitter yeah, and then last year he didn't play, basically. Last year, yeah, he was uh, it was kind of all around. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I suppose health is uh, also contributes to that. You know, in, in terms of um, concepts that are, uh, that are potentially uh, useful, uh, profitable in terms of understanding them for understanding baseball, you mentioned this sort of, um, this, I guess, this interaction between playing time and production. Yeah. That... That the, the one influences the other, that uh, reminds me of of this sort of this uh, a similar relationship I think between um, years and average annual value when we right. see contracts. Yep. It's very rare. It seems like uh, you know, like you mentioned, uh, um, JD Martinez, and what given his skill set, he's his average annual value will be what between twenty five thirty million something yeah, like that. There. Okay, but he's not going to get a one year no. thirty million dollar contract. Right. That. That's rarely happened. I, I, the moments when players have received a very few amount of years relative to their average annual value seems to be. I, I feel like Roger Clemens got like a couple of those when he kept coming out of retirement. Yeah. In the end of his career, but he didn't get like the half season deal where it was like a prorated portion of twenty million dollars or whatever. Right, but there there are very few other instances where it actually occurs. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the actually the new CBA really discourages these kinds of deals because the teams that want to spend a lot of money are either at or near the luxury tax line, um, which they call a CBT, the collective, or the competitive balance tax. Um, you nailed it, good. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, and so the way the tax is applied is it's applied to the annual average value of your contract. So if you sign a really high AAV short-term deal, you pay more tax than if you spread out the money. And so, like, we haven't seen it yet, but, like, the incentive is there for teams to sign guys to, like, J.D. Martinez to, like, 12-year deals. And, like, it's 12 years at $20 million a year or, you know, like, 12 years at $16 million a year. Like, um, as more or teams... 50, or 50 years. Well, I think at some point, like, the league would step in and say... You know, <laughs> this is clearly just a tax scam. <laughs> you can't do this. Uh, but I think, you know, like, we've seen players sign until they're 40. Like, I think, um, 
you know, it wouldn't be outrageous to get J.D. Martinez a 10-year contract. Like, Robinson Cano, Albert Pujols got 10-year contracts. Like, you know, you, you clearly don't want to give him a 10-year contract of $30 million a year. That's not what I'm suggesting. But if you say, like, look, we're going to give you $160 million anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe just let us give you 175 for the rest of your contract. Yes, you're setting yourself up so where you're never going to get another payday. If you thought you were going to get a big contract when you were 37 after this one ends, you are giving up that right but, like, we'll give you, like, 15 or $20 million extra or whatever it is, and then we get those extra years, and then we don't have to pay, you know, 50% tax on your contract every year for the next seven years or six years or whatever they're going to give him. Um, like, the incentive is there for teams to do that. We haven't seen them do it yet, but, like, you know, one of these years, I think someone's going to realize, like, I'm at the CBT threshold. I want to sign this, like, reliever. I'm going to sign him to a nine-year... $22 million contract. It's going to be like just the most absurd thing anyone's ever seen. It's like $3 million a year until you're dead. Uh, but it's going to save us a bunch of money on the luxury tax. It's going to help paying for college. Too. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've already seen this with deferred money. Like, teams are already pushing money back. Like, that's not an issue. It's just, like, no one has really challenged the structure of the, the way they're taxed yet. But I think someone's going to do it. Someone's going to eventually just realize, I'm just going to give this, like, bench player a 10-year contract. Well, isn't this something that's occurred in hockey? Yeah. Haven't there been, let's see, Ilya Kovalchuk like agreed to a, seven, <laughs> a 17-year deal. Yeah, right. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, the hockey did the same thing, where it was like uh, the the incentive was to sign as long a contract as possible, so everyone just signed these, like, lifetime deals. Right. And, uh, and what, so you say that there has to be some sort of approval process, and we obviously, we discussed this to a certain uh, in a different context, but th- the same idea with regard to Shohei Otani, right? Yeah. Is that there was going to be some oversight as to how his uh, negotiations were handled, but there was never, in in particular, as to when a an extension would be yeah. offered to Otani. Right. But there's no official ruling on it. There's no. There's nothing that's actually. There's no letter uh, of the law to which to which the league would point. So it's just right. a question of teams attempting to nudge as close as possible right. to what is tasteful yeah. without w- without violating this sort of what is literally an unwritten rule. Yeah. Uh, but th- it's the same situation that you're discussing here. It's, a, it's a, Essentially, it's like a question of taste or w- w- something that's like within the, the bounds of the reasonable and how do you yeah. define reasonable. And then you also have to deal with the fact like you know, say you have, like, a 40-year-old player that you gave a 10-year-old contract to. Like, it's very clear, like, he's not going to play until he's 50. So at some point, he's going to want to retire. And if he if he retires, he surrenders the remaining money on his contract. So you have to get them to essentially uh, surrender some of the money that they've agreed to. Say you give this 40-year-old a 10-year, $10 million contract. They're actually only going to get $5 million or $3 million or whatever it is, how long they're going to play before they retire. If they don't retire, they're on your 40-man roster, right? Like... Uh, or you have to cut them or whatever, and like so. There's um, you have to get the player to kind of buy into surrendering money once they retire uh, or not retiring. And if they don't retire, they're not eligible for the Hall of Fame. Like there's all these like weird little things that, like disincentivize the players for going along with it because like the players don't care how much tax you pay. Um, which is one but of the if you cut the teams. player now. Wait, if you cut the player, say you've given a <laughs> you've given a player a a hundred year contract, yeah, right, and it's for a million dollars a year, yeah. It's it's a it's a one hundred, one hundred contract. Yeah. Um, but you cut him, you cut him like uh, five years into the deal, so yeah. he has ninety five years, ninety five million left. Right. No, oh, so this is my point though. You cut him, 
you have to pay him ninety five million dollars, yeah. right? Yeah. But do you have to pay? Do you have to pay him it in a lump sum? No, no. You can just like continue to pay it as the contract said. And how would it be? And how would it be assessed, or how would it be counted in terms of um, luxury tax? Same way, million dollars a year on your books for the next ninety five years. So the player doesn't have to retire. He could just be cut by the team. Right, but you know, a lot of players probably aren't going to want to be released as like their way of going out. Like, if you go to a player and be like, "Hey, you've had a really good career. You're still playing when you're 39. Like, congratulations on like that Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame career." What we would like to do is to avoid a tax. We would like to release you with no dignity, uh-huh. uh, and then like for the rest of your life and your grandchildren's life, some newspaper is going to be like, "Oh, the Mariners are paying Bobby Bonilla again." Like, uh, you know, I think like. That's not a super great sale to a player. Bobby, right? So Bobby Bonilla's contract is famous because of the backloaded nature yeah, of it. It's like he's still getting money from the Mets twenty and years what, later. What were the ter- do? You, do you have a remember a ballpark? I'm, we did not prepare this at all. Do you no, I think he got like maybe four years, sixteen million or something like that. But like, or maybe it was thirty million, something like that. But like, ten million of it was deferred, so that was like these ten year, fifteen years, one million dollar payments like, way in the future that are happening now. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, like, as much criticism as it gets, if you actually look at, like, the time value of money, like, the deal turned out just fine for the Mets. Like, they, yes, it's, like, it seems silly on the surface that the Mets are sending a million dollars to Bobby Bonilla, but that's money they didn't have to spend back in 1987 or 94 or whenever it was uh, when Bobby Bonilla was good. When a million dollars, like, really mattered, when that was, like, would get you something, when that would buy you a major league player, that was money they still had and they could use to make their team better. And so um, you want to account for the fact that they didn't have to spend that money then. That's valuable. And Bonilla provided enough production to, like, when you actually adjust the value of the contract for the deferral, he played up to his money. Okay. Uh, with regard to some current events, Dave Cameron, uh, or I suppose the lack of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, among among the, the the prospects who appeared in your top fifty free agent list, at least among the top five, I think only Carlos Santana signed. Correct. Um, he might be the only guy in the top ten who signed. Oh no, I guess Wade Davis signed. So, so yeah, so so Ray, Wade Davis did just sign. Um, now Craig Edwards wrote about this to some degree, and he quoted a really cool piece actually by a writer from Royals Review, whose name is. Yeah, that's um, a good name to have for an RR blog. Yeah, let's see. Um, oh, I feel so bad. Uh, I will. I will be uh, efforting to find this as as this happens. But the point is, what he what uh, this writer for Royal Review named Matt Riper. Oh God, is this true? Can I not? Can I seriously not find it? Anyway, it's uh, apparently no. And you know what? I'm lying the whole time. This is really great. This is, um, it, I think it maybe was Travis Sodrick who cited it. The basic point is this, is that relative to the Fangraphs crowdsource estimates, right? Yeah. The contracts received before by players before January 1st were signed at something like a, I said like a 4 or 5% discount relative to, um, relative to what the crowdsource estimates were. But after January 1st, it, it is... Um, I think it's like a 25% discount right. or something like that. And the name of is Max Riper. I'm going to say Riper or Reaper, R-I-E-P-E-R. He did it. He did. He performed the study. And, and the numbers I've presented here are, are basically correct. Um, is that the longer players have to wait, the less they're, the less they're making in terms of guaranteed dollars relative to what the crowd has estimated. 
so teams are just waiting. Is this um, is this a strategy that? I mean, it seems pretty sound. They haven't they haven't spent much money yet. Yeah. So I think like this is a, a great case of selection bias, and like uh, if teams are looking at that kind of data and then saying like, oh great, we're gonna get a twenty five percent discount on you, Darvish, if we sign him in January versus in November, they're wrong. Like that's <laughs> this is not how this is gonna work. The way that that has shaken out is the guys who sign in January for the twenty five percent discount. Uh, are the guys who are left over after everybody else has signed and there aren't any jobs left. And so they literally don't have multiple suitors, so they just take whatever anyone will give them. It's like last year, Logan Morrison got $2.5 million from the Rays because the Rays were the only team left who didn't have a left-handed first baseman. And if Logan Morrison wanted a major league job, that was his opportunity. And so, like, um, I think that there's a lack of leverage that comes down to when it's just one bidder, one player, but that's when the player takes a pretty steep discount. That is not currently the case. Uh, we have Darvish and uh, Alex Cobb and Lance Lynn and Jake Arrieta. Like all these starting pitchers are still out there, and Lorenzo Kane and you know Eric Hosmer and Mike Mustakas and you know like if you want a free agent, there's still plenty of them, and there's still plenty of teams that need good players, and there's still plenty of budget room to go around. And so I think if teams are looking at it being like, well, prices come down in January. One, I don't think that's what the teams are doing. Um, but if they're doing that then they don't understand why prices come down in January, and we're not going to see that effect until all these guys sign. Like, there's still going to be that class of free agents who have to take a discount because there's no jobs left, and they were the last man standing when they were playing musical chairs. But, like, we're not at the point where there's only one chair and one person left. Like, uh, these free agents are going to get paid. Now, but, so, so perhaps, so maybe these, maybe the top free agents still get the same amount of money, but maybe this is a way of forcing some of the middle class of free agent to uh, be um, to essentially to sign be for a, lo- a lower amount than they otherwise would have due to a sense of anxiety. I know oh, that. Uh, yeah. So this was in a post from Travis Ochik. MLB teams have learned to wait on free agents, and he cites in particular um, uh, an anecdote relayed by David Freeze when David Freeze in um, in, tw- in 2016 he waited until. He, wasn't able until March to sign. He signed with the, the Pirates and he signed for just one year and three million dollars. I think yeah. he went on to be to produce like two wins or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so it was obviously it was good for the Pirates. Didn't make. I mean, it ultimately did not work out very well for David Freeze, um, who's you know, if he had been compensated for how much he was actually providing in terms of wins, he would have made more. Uh, but is there a way maybe to sort of? Is the idea to sort of, bu- I mean, bully some of the some of the players into um, signing so that they can avert the anxiety associated with, uh, you know, watching uh, their colleagues take to the field and they're just sitting at home. So I think like that might like there might be some teams trying to do that. I don't think that's what's happening either, though. I think like that's a um, a narrative you can tell yourself, but like they're not they're not at a spot where anyone's going to have anxiety. Because all of them are unsigned, like all these main guys are saying, like, oh well, Mustaka hasn't signed, Frazier hasn't signed, like all these guys. It's not just me, right? Like the th- the fear of missing out is like when you're the only one left, and like all these other guys have signed, and now you're like, oh crap, if I want a job, I should go find the only team with budget money left. All these teams have budget money left because they haven't spent it. Like you know, you Darvish didn't make no money last year, so 
the fact that you Darvish is a free agent means that there's $25 million off of the books, or $20 million whatever Darvish made, that hasn't been re-spent on someone else yet. And so, you know, like Lance Lynn and Greg Holland, like, you know, maybe they didn't make as much as they want to make right now, but they didn't make zero. So there's budget room left, there's positions available, like, you're not going to get that same fear of missing out pressure just because, like, we're six weeks from spring training, because there's still so many teams out there in need of upgrades who have money to spend. Um, and I think, like, you know... If this is what teams are trying to do, it's not going to work. I think, like, if you look at, like, the free agents who have signed so far, which is mostly the middle class of free agents, it's the relievers. They've gotten more than, or, you know, like, what we forecast in, like, an optimistic market, right? Like, you know, if you look at kind of the contracts that have been signed so far, like Tommy Hunter got $18 million. Like, we're not kind of seeing this, like, scraping the bottom of the barrel you know, good players getting a million here, three million there that we saw, you know, back in 2008, the last time there was, like, no free agent spending when everyone just signed for peanuts and, like, none of the top guys got any real money. It's like, there's clearly money in the game and it's gone to middle-class players. So now, like, the teams are trying to put the squeeze on the top-end guys. That's not going to work. Like, Lance Lynn is not going to settle for Tommy Hunter money. So why are... So why is the market so cold? Why is the stove... The proverbial stove... Yeah. Dave Cameron, why is it so cold? So one thing I would note is like the Scott Boris factor. Like Scott Boris notoriously takes a very long time with his clients. Like this is just part of his strategy. He carries his top guys later into the offseason than anybody else. And regularly, like every year, Scott Boris has some high-priced free agent sitting around in January without a job. And, and can you remind like, us who who his uh, clients are that are you know the top ten free agents or whatever? So this year. He's yeah. got uh, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, uh I think he has Jake, yeah, he has Jake Arrieta, he's got, um, I don't know, like seven more guys whose names I don't remember off the top of my head. He, I think Boris has 20 free, current free agents, J.D. Martinez is a Scott Boris guy. Uh, like basically all of the guys where you're like, why haven't they signed yet? Well, they're represented by the guy who goes the slowest. And so... I think this is a, an exceptional year where there wasn't an Excel client out there. There wasn't, you know, um, one of the other agencies who moves a little bit quicker and just gets their stuff done, where Bor- Boris's game plan is to drag things out. And so I think teams are not in as much a hurry this year, in part because they are looking at next year's free agent class and saying, we don't necessarily want to spend all of our money right now because there's this crazy crop of free agents coming in a year. Um, Boris takes his time. Neither of these sides are really going to, like, bully each other, and so it's just taking a long time. Is there a, um, is there a, you mentioned the 2018-2019 the offseason, when in particular uh, Bryce Harper and Manny Machado would be well, Clayton Kershaw, Josh Donaldson, <laughs> so like not right, just exactly, those yeah. two. <laughs> right, there's a lot of talent. Yeah. Um, and so and it, it is there. It is possible that certain teams, especially those teams that are having to contend with uh, a, what a, a luxury tax threshold or yeah. the equivalent of CBT threshold, uh, they're attempting. They they don't want to to surpass it. Some teams are resetting. I think what the Yankees are trying to reset, right? The yeah. Dodgers are trying to reset, yeah. so they don't receive the multi-year penalties. Is there is there precedent for teams for collectively as a group, and not in it, not not in terms of collusion, but collectively, essentially. Refusing to spend because the next class is so strong. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's collusion. I do think like the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Phillies and the Cubs are probably the four teams that most people think have a chance to sign Harper or Machado. Like most likely Harper or Machado is going to one of those two teams or one of those four teams. 
Maybe someone gets into it. Maybe the Nationals resign Harper. But, like, in general, I think the expectation is Yankees, Dodgers, Phillies, Cubs. Um, so those four teams are not going to, you know, they didn't trade for a well, while. The Yankees traded for Jacob Stanton, but only because they got him for basically nothing and were able to unload just um, Starling Castro's deal in the process. So, like, um, those teams are not setting themselves up for a situation where it's like, well, we can't bet on Harper or Machado now because we got this other guy. Um, so I do think, like, you know, J.D. Martinez is probably... He hit free agency at the wrong time because you like otherwise the Yankees or the Cubs or the Dodgers might be really interested in JD Martinez, uh, but they're holding their corner outfielder long term commitment for next year. Um, so I do think that's affecting a few players. Like I don't think that's affecting Lance Lynn or Alex Cobb or you know some of these other guys. I do think there's a real domino effect where it's like some the Cobb Lynn guys are probably going to sign after Darvish signs, and so you know. Darvish is negotiating with teams who, like the Cubs, who are considering their long-term ramifications of, like, if we gave a bunch of money now, can we do a thing next year? There are probably these domino players where if this guy is negotiating with a few teams that are trying to figure out what they're doing and they're not entirely sure what their plan is yet, until that guy's off the market, then the secondary pieces aren't going to go anywhere either. So, like, when Darvish goes, then Cobb and Arietta and... Uh, you know, Lynn and all those guys might go within like six to eight days within, and like you might get like five guys signing in a week. Okay, uh, you very nearly fulfilled your obligation to the program. Uh, what I would like to say uh, before we go, though, uh, is that Fangraphs is hiring. It is hiring. Uh, Fangraphs is seeking a full-time writer. Yeah. Do you have any uh, comments on that, uh, that beyond uh, the sort that uh, David Appleman himself uh, provided? In the, um, the original post. So I do, I, I would really like to encourage people to apply. Um, you know, it's not, um, you know, I'm not going to guarantee anyone that's listening to this podcast that they're going to get the job. I will say we've already gotten over 300 applications. Some of them are from really good writers. Like, it's stiff competition. So I'm not going to sit here and say, like, apply because you're going to get it. You probably aren't going to get it. But I think there's real value in applying, uh, one, just because we're, I'm going to read every single application we get. And, like, we're going to look over all these things. We're going to look at your writing samples. Like, um, it doesn't hurt to get your name and your work in front of us just in general, right? So, like, this is an opportunity to do that. Um, so send in your submissions. Send in links to what you've done. Send in your resume. Maybe you're not a fit for this job. Maybe you won't end up being the person we hire. But, like, it doesn't cost you that much. Maybe, you know, spend a little bit of time on this. You know, try and get your... Pick out the ones, pick out the writing samples that you have that you feel like best represents you. Um, and then, like, you know, we're gonna probably hire again in the future. Maybe not for a full-time position that soon, but like, perhaps we're gonna have a freelancing position. Perhaps we'll say, you know what, we would like to see what you could do writing at the Hardball Times a couple times a month. Or, you know, like, we would like to offer you some other opportunity. And so, um, if you think, like, man, how do I get my foot in the door in terms of working at Fangraphs? Sending us an application is, like, actually a really good way to do it. And so even if you think, like, man, you know, maybe I'm still in college, I'm not quite ready for a full-time job, um, this isn't a fit for me, that's okay. Send us your application anyway. Um, and, you know, spend some time on it. Like, don't just send us, like, three links with no words around it. Like, try and tell us who you are and give us a bit about you. And um, I will say, like, when it's come to... Um, filling out our staff uh, frequently in the past. We've gone back to the applications we've gotten and like, oh yeah, we remember that guy and now he's gone on. And um, I think actually like Craig Edwards was uh, one of these guys where he applied for a position we had hired or we had posted. Um, we interviewed Craig. I think we ended up going with someone else 
and we felt bad that we didn't hire Craig because we liked him, and then, like, not that much longer, we're like, oh, we have an opening. Let's just go hire Craig, because we had just recently talked to him, um, and that's how Craig Edwards joined the staff. So I think... Um, and it, uh, not just Guy, of course. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, people of all of the genders. Yeah. Right. So like, the term Guy is certainly not supposed to be uh, male-inclusive uh, or right. male-exclusive, I guess. Uh, certainly, you know, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're any kind of minority, like, obviously, we've talked about this, baseball has a significant white male problem <laughs> in the sense of, like, you and I are white guys, and this is the traditional, yes. we're the yeah. gatekeepers in some it. sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, Fangrass is absolutely interested in... Um, reducing the uh, domination of white guys in this industry. And so if you are not a white dude, please apply. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, um, yeah and I think, uh, I think it it uh, stands to reason that if you have a, a variety of voices, then you're more likely to... Um you know, to reach some, to ask some interesting questions and absolutely some interesting answers. Like, there's no question that, like, you know, uh, people with different backgrounds are going to have different perspectives, and we need different perspectives. And so, we would strongly encourage if you th- if you're someone who's like, well, you don't have any women on staff, which uh, by the time this goes up, that might not be true anymore, uh, depending on when Carson posts this cool announcement coming. Uh, a little bit of a teaser there, uh, but you don't, ha- you know, historically, Fangraphs has been mostly male. Um, don't let that discourage you at all. We are absolutely interested in having women. We're interested in having any minority, people with different backgrounds, people with different perspectives. You don't have to think like us. You don't have to talk like us. Um, I hope that uh, whoever it is does not, does not think, talk, or look uh, yeah. like you, Dave Cameron. Yeah, that, that would be, be really terrible. terrible. For everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, very good. I will have to say that uh, uh, having looked over some of the applications, um, and I don't necessarily mean this out of humility. I mean it out of... Uh, a shrinking sense of self worth is that uh, I I would not I would not be hired if I were playing right now. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Although I will say there was one person in particular who uh, very much tried to I think win your vote. Like uh, I think he he reg- he sent in his note saying like I wish this was a not graphs posting, but I guess I'll settle for fan graphs. And then the rest of his email was like in a Carson imitation tone. Um, yeah. So you know, like there are people out there still trying to get hired with Carson's sensibilities. Well, with not graphs, which yeah. is, I actually admire anyone who's still trying to get hired by not graphs. <laughs> yeah, it's quite um, the optimistic tone. <laughs> um, all right, well that's very good. Uh, look forward to that. Do you, do you have a sense of when there would be an announcement regarding that? Um, somewhere in January. I don't like you know with 300 applications and more coming in every day. Um, this is going to take us a while to get through. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're not going to drag this out forever, so... Um, yeah, I hope it's not this weekend, because I still have to finish my Herbal Times post. Yeah, no, there's no way we're going to, like... <laughs> this is going to take a few weeks, so... Have you finished your Herbal Times post? No. Good. <laughs> good. Oh, that's so good. Okay, good. Uh, well, Dave Cameron, you have uh, totally uh, fulfilled your obligation to FanGraphs Audio. Uh, not, permanently, not permanently, but for the time being. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right. That has been Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. That has been Fangraphs Audio.